Any more prayer requests? Let's pray. God, thank you so, so much. God, you are so incredibly good. God, thank you that we are sheltered, safe within the arms of God. Well, thank you that when we wake up in the middle of the night, Lord, that we can pray to you and you can calm us in our fears. Thank you, God, that we have the blessed assurance that we can pray and that you go with our family and you keep them safe, Lord, when we can't go with them, Lord, and you keep a hedge about our families and our homes, Father. And Lord, that we can pray to you and we can look back over prayer requests that we've, that we've asked and see the miracles on this side of it, Father. All we tell you is thank you, God. Thank you that we're even allowed to come into your throne room of grace, Lord. And your word says that we might obtain mercy, God. Thank you for the mercy, Lord. Thank you, Lord, just for putting up with us. Thank you for loving us in spite of us, God. Lord, you know the many requests, God, and certainly the flu. A lot of people have it now, Father. A lot of people need a touch. God, seems like there's not one thing, it's a dozen more. But you hold all things in your hand, Father. I pray you take these prayer requests. Lord, keep a hedge about our schools, Lord. Continue, Lord, to keep a hedge. Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you did in the elections, Lord. I, I pray, Lord, that, Lord, I pray for those in leadership, Father. Some of those would, Lord, how awesome it would be to see some of them saved, God, to see them give their life to Christ and, to, and for the world to see them turn around and take a whole new position, God. And Lord, I know we're supposed to pray for the lost, and that includes our leaders, Father. Lord, I pray you take this word tonight. Will you teach us, speak to us, God? We pray most of all, may you be pleased with all that we do. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts chapter 17, if you guys want to open your Bible there, we'll pick up where we left off last week. If y'all remember we were there, Paul was preaching at Athens. And when he was preaching in Athens, he began preaching um, at, at a place that they could understand. He began preaching at a place where they wouldn't be offended. If I had to back up three weeks, and I don't want to go way back because I know most of you have been here. But remember when he came into Athens and he had some time on his hand and he walked the streets and there's hundreds of idols. There's idols, there's false gods all over Athens and everything about it is just idolatry and falsehood. And then and he goes in and he begins to debate in the synagogue and then he begins to preach. And after coming in, he doesn't start out by attacking their idols. He doesn't start going in pointing out all the things that they're doing wrong. He doesn't go in trying to tear down the things that they believe in. You know, somebody believes in something and you start right out tearing it down, then you've automatically set up a headbutt situation. But what he does do is as he was walking down the street that day, one of the plaques that he saw, one of the stones was the, was the, the plaque. It was the monument of the unknown God. There was an unnamed God. And out of all their monuments, out of all their statues, out of all their false gods, they had one that's called the unknown God. And that's where Paul started with his teaching. He didn't start by trying to tear down Zeus and all the others they had up there. He said, let's start with this one. Let's talk about the unnamed God because he's not an unnamed God. He has a name. You call him the unknown God, but he's not the unknown God. He's known by those that seek him. He's known by those that look for him. You don't know him, but that doesn't make him unknown. So he begins to teach them about this unknown God and, and, and who he is. And, and he tells them that he is the creator, Jehovah, Elohim. He's creator of all things. He said in verse 24, he made the world and all things therein, seeing that he's Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Neither is worship with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth and hath determined times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Verse 27, he says this, this God of creation is not far away from any of you. He says that they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after him and find him. But I love 
the last part of verse number 27, though he be not far from every one of us. There is never a moment, never a second, any, any minute of any time, day or night, that God is far from us. There's never a time that, that he's not so, so close that a whisper won't reach him. Matter of fact, he's so close you don't even have to whisper it. A thought will get his attention. If you just start out, Abba, Father. If you just start out, Father. And, and you know you're talking. He, he's never far away. So I love that. He's telling them, hey, in the midst of your idolatry, in the midst of your sin. See, some of us has been there. In the midst of our troubles, in the midst of, actually all of us has been there. In the worst of our times, before we were saved and out there living in the field, God was still a whisper away. He was still a hedge of protection around us, protecting us, even when we we were lost. I thank God for protecting me long enough for me to get saved. I should have died a thousand times before I ever got to that. But he protected us even when we were lost. There's never a time when God's far away. Sometimes, just like the, when she, she was angry with God because something happened, sometimes it feels like God's a long way away, but he's not. Sometimes it feels like God's not in the middle of our situation, but he is. Sometimes it feels like things are out of control, but they're not. They may be out of our control, but they're never out of his control, right? So he tells them, he be not far from every one of us. He said, this God can be known by you. It doesn't matter that you have all these idols, more than a hundred false gods, things carved with man. It doesn't matter that you're breaking the first and second commandment that you have, that you don't love the Lord God first. It doesn't matter that you have other gods before him and you're bowing down and worshiping. This God is close to you. This God still loves you. This God wants to save you. And he said, he says, I already know that you know there's something else. In so many words, this is what he tells them. I already know that you know there's something missing in your life. I already know that you know there's more to life than what you have. You know how I know that? Because you keep making idols. You keep coming up with another type of golden calf. You keep coming up with another type of a goat. You keep coming up with another type of a tree. You keep making idols because you keep looking for something. You're looking for something you don't have. That's how I know you're still looking. And in your search, because you can't find it, you've named him the unnamed God. But he says in verse number 28, he says, he says, for in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. See, now it's not that Paul is endorsing the, the Greek poets. He's certainly not endorsing them because they're, they're full of idolatry. They're, they're very paganistic people. But, but they, the poets, they're, they're poets in this society. They're, they're writers of all this Greek philosophy and stuff. They, they are held at high standards. They're held with high regards. They're very respected. And he said, some of your own poets say that, that we are the offsprings of God. Even those guys admit that there's somebody else, and we are the offspring of God. We are descendants of Adam. Now, we may not be the absolute son of God. Only Jesus Christ can stake that claim. Amen. We, we know that only Jesus Christ has, has that absolute, that he is the only begotten son of the living God. But we are all the offspring of Adam, the first created son of God. You know, a few weeks ago, we were all doing our reading together. We read 1 John, right? 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, we started out with, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, our hands have handled the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we've seen it, and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. 
that we which have seen and heard declare unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You and I were born into sin. We, we were shaped. The Bible says that we were shaped in iniquity. That's, that's why we have to be born again. That's why we must be born of the Spirit. But even in our sin, the Bible tells that God loved us so much that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even on our worst day at our worst time, Jesus Christ climbed up on an old rugged cross so that we might become joint heirs with Jesus. John chapter 1 verse 12 says, As many as received him, to them he gave them power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Romans 8 14, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul said, Do all things without murmurings and disputing, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Listen, that is our job. We, we are to be the sons of God in the midst of this crooked and perverse nation, and we are to be the light of the world. 1 John chapter 3, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Paul says even your own poets acknowledge that, that we are the offspring of, of this God. In verse number 29 of our text, it says, For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver or, or stone or, or graven by art and man's device. Now, you've got to love the way the Holy Spirit guides this conversation. You know, Paul, Paul could have gone into this all wrong. If you go in, you know, a few weeks ago, we talked about the guidance of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit gives guidance. That, that we ought to pursue every minute of every day of our life to be led by the Holy Spirit. And we see that. Remember when we were looking at how Paul, when Paul was going past city after city and they were lost and undone, they needed preaching, but the Holy Spirit forbade him to go into that city, forbade him to preach in that city, and you had to be wondering, like, why? It doesn't matter why. If the Holy Spirit says don't go into that city, then don't go into that city. But had he gone into that city, he doesn't end up in Europe. If he doesn't end up in Europe, then he doesn't end up here in Athens. So we see that the Holy Spirit had a plan. Same thing's true in our life. God's got a plan and where the Holy Spirit gives guidance. So the Holy Spirit is guiding his speech here. He could have started out attacking their idols. He could have started out, don't you know the second and greatest commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not bow down and worship any graven image or make any great. Don't you know the law? And he could have started out harsh, but he didn't. He started out by saying, hey, one of your own gods is called the unknown God. Let me introduce you to him. Let, 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 me, let me tell you who he is. This is who God is. So he doesn't start out in an attack. He, he introduces them through one of their own monuments. But listen, sooner or later, sooner or later when you're witnessing to somebody, sin has to be dealt with. Sooner or later, you can tell them about Christ, you can tell them about salvation, but somebody can't be found so they know they're lost. So, so you can tell them about all the good things of God all you want, and that's what Paul has done, but sooner or later... Sooner or later, the sin's got to be dealt with. 
So Paul starts, starts turning towards their wickedness. He starts turning towards the hopelessness of all these idols that, that they've got. And, and he tells them about this one true creator. And he says, he can't be graven by the hands of men. The, the God of the universe can't be carved out by the hands of men. He can't, he can't be held. He's not a statue that can't even move on his own, that you've got to move him around. This word that he uses right there, the Greek word that he uses for craven, for, for graven, that word is not used anywhere else in all of the New Testament except in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, it's used eight times. And all eight times, it is referring to the mark of the beast. And that's where false gods take you. That's where idolatry takes you. That's where graven images take you. So he says, look, you, you, you got to stay away from that. He said, you, you've been searching for God all your lives. You've been looking for a God. That's what all these idols are about. You've been looking for something. It's no different than in America or anywhere else. We talk about all the time. There's a void in a man. There is a void people look for it in alcohol bottles. They look for it in pill bottles. There is a void within a man. They're always looking for it. The void is the missing part of the Holy Spirit. And until that's born again, that void is not going to be filled. So, so he, he, he's talking about all of their idolatries, all the stuff that they've been looking for. They obviously are incredibly talented people. Remember, I think it was last week we talked about kind of like those people that, that live along the train tracks that paint all that great-looking graffiti on the side of that stuff. They're obviously incredibly talented people. They, they make all this stuff. But in verse number 30, there's an incredible explanation. It says, and it starts out, says that the times of this ignorance, the, time, the times of this ignorance, it says that God winked at. The, the, the times of ignorance. What, what that means is, is that God ignored that that's what that wink that is in the times of their ignorance god ignored he said it's okay it, it's okay you you didn't know you've been searching for god you've been making you've been breaking the second great commandment you've been breaking all the law making these things but but you've been looking for something you've been you've been searching for god that's why you keep making your idol that's why you keep doing it for stuff and god said it's okay he says that in their ignorance, anybody happy, anybody thankful that God said back in our past and our sin, it's okay? It's, it's, it's okay, I, I still love you. In their foolishness, God ignored this idolatry. That, that is the patience of our God. That ought to be exciting to us. That is the long-suffering of our God. Anybody need God to be patient with you? Anybody need God's mercy? That, that is a great picture of the long-suffering of God. But then he says, however, now that you know the truth, repentance is necessary. In, in your ignorance, it's okay. God winked at it. God ignored it. It's okay. God says, I'm not going to hold that against you. But now that you know the truth, now that you know the truth, patience stops. Now, now that you know the real God, that there's going to be no patience towards rejection. Now, now, now you've got you to make a decision. Verse number 30, the times that God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. God says the time of long-suffering is past. The decision is at hand, and judgment is coming. See, the... Verse number 31, because he hath appointed a day. 
in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Of course, that's Jesus Christ. Now, here's the problem with the people that he's talking to. They, in their Greek philosophy and in their Greek mythology, anybody have to take mythology when you're in school? Do you have to take that? Yeah. I don't know why I had to take that garbage. I just remember. That's, that's the one class I got in trouble because I was supposed to be reading. But anyway, in, in all of their mythology and all of their theology, all of their, their stuff that, that they make up, it gave absolutely no thought of there ever being any judgment. Th their gods were created for them for their benefit. I mean, if they created a god for the big toe, it was to make the big toe not hurt. Whatever they made a God for, that, that God was for, for their appeal. That God was supposed to be for, for their pleasure, for their well-doing. So they, they had no concept of a judgment. They had no concept of an impending judgment. They, they had no concept of the fact that every man will be held accountable by his creator. They, 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 they never knew that before. They've never heard that. You know, when, when John talks about it, he refers to it as the great white throne of judgment. You know, where the seas gave up the dead which were in them, death and hell delivered up those which were in them, and every man shall be judged according to his works. There's a judgment day coming. There, there, there's a time when man's decisions will be brought before God and a decision will be made. So he says up until now the, the Greeks, they have no concept of this. But now they do. So Paul has come in and, and he's introduced them to the one true God. The unknown God, he's not, un, he's not unknown. Let me tell you who he is. So they've been introduced to God. Now they've been warned of their idolatry. God's not going to have any other gods before him. This is the true God, so you serve him, and you get rid of all this other stuff. And now they've been warned of the judgment that will come. But then Paul goes on to give them proof. See, see Paul has a way of knowing for certain, a proof of how he knows this God, a proof of how he knows that, that God is always near. How many of you know that God is always near because he's always near? He, he's in you. He's your spirit. He talks to you. He, he helps you. You, you feel him. Paul, Paul has a way of knowing that, that God's judgment is certain. He says, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that hath raised him from the dead. Now that's going to be a problem because nobody in Athens believes in any form of resurrection. All of Greek philosophy, there, there's nothing about that. There, there is no one there that believes in any form of life after death. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, we'll hear thee again of this matter. Basically, that's just a way out of it. We'll talk about it again, but, but there, there's no belief. See, here's the problem with that. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is our life. If he's not the first resurrected from the dead, then we're not resurrected from the dead after him. So, so the, the very centerpiece, yes, the virgin birth is absolute necessity that he be born without the same seed of sin that we're born with. Yes, the cross was necessary that he shed his blood, that by his blood our sins can be washed away, not covered like bulls and goats, washed away in the blood. But without the resurrection, we're no different than all the rest of the false gods of the world. We're no different than the rest of the false religions of the world. Buddha's dead. Whatever that little short fat guy statue is, he's dead. He's not there anymore. Muhammad's dead. 
The, the golden calf never lived. All, all of the false gods, all the things that put out there, all these idols, all of it's dead. It's stuff, it is, it is ideas that has been created by the ideology of man. It is things being created by the hands of man. It's not the things of God. So without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are, as Paul put it, as others which have no hope. Now, he doesn't say we are. What he says is that we sorrow not as others which have no hope. Great passage for a funeral. We talked about it in Miss St. Clair's the other day. That is a great passage always. We sorrow not as others which have no hope. Because I do have a hope. I have a hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I know that when I close my eyes in this life, I'm going to see the face of my Savior. When I close my eyes in this life, I'm going to see streets of gold and crystal sea and gates of pearl and walls of jasper. But most of all, I'm going to see Jesus. So, but, but it's because of the resurrection of Christ. Now, remember when this started, the, the, the two people there is the Epicureans and the Stoics. Remember those guys? So we saw them, I guess that was last week. But remember what they said when they came in? Let's go hear what this babbler's got to say. This guy's a nutcase, fruit basket. He's been out talking on the street, talking about some God, some Jesus. Let's go listen to this old babbler. Let's go listen to this nutcase and see what he has to say. Now, now up until now, since Paul started with the unknown God, he's, they, they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. What's this babbler saying? So, so see how the Holy Spirit got their attention? Because if he'd gone in and he'd started out by knocking down one of their number one idols, then right off the bat, you got a fight on your hands, and he gets thrown out of the synagogue, and all this is over, right? Right? This is their town. This is their God. You don't just come in here tearing our stuff down. But that's not the way the Holy Spirit did it. The Holy Spirit came in, and what you see is, is that there's time there now. The Holy Spirit has, has started with this. Let me tell you about this unknown God. They're like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, I want to hear this. He, he's talking about one of, our own, one of our own plaques out here, this unknown God. And so now he has their undivided attention. And, and he's telling things, and, and, and they're listening until he gets to the most critical part of the story. When he gets to the most crucial part that they've got to understand, that the Holy Spirit brings up last, and he tells them about the resurrection. It says they begin to mock him. The, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that, that's Paul's proof. That, that's how Paul knows that everything he just told them is the absolute truth. But it's the same thing as you and I when, when we're witnessing everybody. All we can do is tell them the truth. What they do with the truth is up to them. You can't make anybody be saved. If, if you could, then it wouldn't really be salvation, would it? it? It'd be a forced hand. It's a personal choice. So what Paul has done here, he's introduced them to God. He's told them about the things of God. He's told them about, the, about Christ. And now he's brought them down, and, and he gives them the most important part of the story. What we see is that almost none. We, we see here, there, there's a few people that hear it. Now, I'm a firm believer. I don't think you can be in a crowd of people and put out the gospel of Jesus Christ and not at least one heart be touched. I don't believe in a group that everybody, I believe the Holy Spirit will work. As a matter of fact, he says his word and not return void. So if you put it out, there's going to go out and do a job. But, but what we see is there's just a little small handful of people. Y'all remember, if y'all remember a couple weeks back when all this started, I mean, they're like in, in the, the, the county seat of the region. They're at the capital where there's hundreds of monuments and all the government buildings. They're, they're in this crowded place. All of the, the government elite are there. And y'all remember how we saw last week a lot of people are just gathering around. Y'all remember? They talked about how a lot of people, they just sit around listening for something new. 
Y'all remember talking about that last week? That's what the Bible said. They, they just got itchy ears. They're just always looking for something new. That's where that, you got all these people. So you're like downtown. You got people everywhere, and, and you don't see but a handful of people that follow him. That's why you don't see a church here in this city for 300 years after this day. Because they turn their back so hard on Christ. They turn their back so hard on the resurrection that you'll see a church. There wasn't enough of them saved. What you see is that they went with Paul. That's what we're going to see right in these next couple of verses. They went with Paul. There wasn't even enough people there to form a church in that great city. It says, So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit, certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysius, the Areopagite, the woman named Damaris, and others with them. Chapter 18, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. Found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. The reason they're there is because all the Jews have been run out. That, that's part of that hatred towards the Jew. And so that they've been run out from, from Rome. And it says that, that, that it came unto him. So, so Corinth now is the Roman capital of Greece. It, it, for, for years, Corinth and Athens were, were enemies. They, they were at odds. They, they were at war. And, until when Corinth basically rebelled, then the Romans destroyed them. So, so they didn't even exist until about 100 years later. I think it's 46, 46 B.C., Julius Caesar comes back and he reestablishes the union and he makes them a, a Roman colony there. So the city of Corinth, the biggest problem they have is that their greatest boast is the temple of Venus. That, that's where the temple of Venus is located. And that's their big God. That's their, that's, that's their big deal. They have the God Venus that, that they worship. And so they have the, 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 the temple there. W without going into a lot of the idolatry, there, there's a lot of not just wickedness, there's a lot of perversion associated with Venus. There, there's a lot of Sex sins. There, 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 there's a lot of filth associated. Fornication. This town is full of it. I, I want to try to give you an idea of what Corinth is like right here. Can, can, can I do that? I went to this part of the letter. I want to read from Romans chapter 1 for just a minute. Verse number 20. It says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew not God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God. And y'all don't worry, I'm not killing Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny again this week. I think I did that last week. So we'll just leave them dead. But it doesn't change the scripture. That they changed the glory of uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and to creeping things. So you took four things and you put them before God. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie. They worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, Romans chapter 1, verse 26, 
God gave them up to vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust toward one another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves the recompense of the error which was meet. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. That's unholy, filth, garbage, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedience to parents without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affections, implicable, unmerciful, who know in the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them to do them. What he says is not just the ones doing this filth are guilty, but approving of it is guilty. So, so not just the homosexual garbage is guilty, approving it is guilty. So of everything that he just named, of all this evil and all this wicked and all this evil imagination and thoughts of the heart, either to do it or to approve of it is equally evil, according to the Word of God. Now, here's why I wanted to read that to you. Here's why this is important. This gives you a picture of Corinth. When Paul wrote that to Rome, that's where he was at. Paul was seated right there in Corinth. This is at the end of the second missionary journey. The second missionary journey is about to come to a close here in just a little bit. That is when Paul sat down and wrote this letter to Rome, and that's what he wrote. And you know who he's describing? Corinth. That's the city that he's in. That's the kind of junk that's surrounding. But he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because that. Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome and came to him. Now, we know a lot about Aquila and Priscilla, right? We, we see a good bit. They are incredible helps to the Apostle Paul. They, they are incredible ministers to him. They are incredible soulmates, if you will, side by side that serve. But here's what we don't know up until right here. We don't know if they were Christians or not when they met Paul. It doesn't tell us that. What it tells us is that Paul met them, but Christianity is not why it says that they met. He met them because they're tent makers, and so is Paul. See, Paul's training is in weaving of goat hair to make canvases to make tents. That's his training. And you know, many times the apostle Paul talks about, I've not been a burden to any of you. Paul makes his own way. Paul works. Paul earns his keep. He don't go around asking for handouts. He don't go around looking for freebies. He works, and it says that the reason he met them is because they were tent makers, and he's a tent maker, so obviously he begins working with them, and he's living there in their house. Verse number 3 says that because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. He reasoned in the synagogue, every Sabbath, and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. So what we see is he's talking in the synagogue to both Jew and Gentile. The, the Greeks are Gentiles. He's teaching both. But what we also see, this, this goes on for a few weeks. Sabbath after Sabbath, this is going on and on. Every Sabbath that, that he goes and persuades. So obviously there's a synagogue there, right? And we've seen that that's kind of Paul's custom, that he goes into a city, he goes to the synagogue. That's where he 
begins, and he begins by talking to the Jews or somebody that might have some knowledge of God. We, we know that we've looked at it before because of his training as a rabbi, because of all the knowledge, all of his skill, because of his professionalism, if you will, from Jerusalem. When he goes into a synagogue, he's going to be welcome. Remember, he didn't stay welcome long, and most of them he's been in so far because he started telling them about Christ, and he got thrown out. But because of his position and because of his training as a rabbi, he's going to be given a floor. He's going to be given an open opportunity to speak. So verse number 5 says that when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, I'd almost forgot about those guys. I wonder why it took them so long to get here. Y'all remember what happened when Paul first got to Athens? He sent, he sent for them, Right? I don't, I don't know what's been going on for weeks, but we, we saw him at Athens, and now here he is at Corinth, and he's been at Corinth for a few weeks. But, but finally they come. It says that, that Paul was pressed in the spirit. He was moved. He, he was encouraged. It says that when they opposed themselves and, and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I'm clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. So I, I'm not sure why it took Silas and Timotheus so long to get there. But here's what I know. When they got there, they encouraged Paul. We know that they brought him financial support from, from the church at Philippi. They, they brought some things there, and that was a great blessing to him. Remember in Philippians chapter 4, when Paul said to the church at Philippi, I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Philippians 4, 19, a lot of Christians love to hang on to this verse. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. If you're not taking care of one of those missionaries, that ain't yours to claim. Philippians 4.19 is not written to the straight-out Christian. It is not written to the flat-out church. The Apostle Paul said to the church at Philippi, the only ones that sent means to help him, the only ones that sent support, he said to them, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. That is a verse that is written as a promise to the Christian that helps support the missionary. Is that all fair and free? Paul, it says that he was, he was pressed in the Spirit. When, when they got there, that means he was encouraged. He was renewed. You, you know, I mean, just, just kind of picture. I realize we're talking about the Apostle Paul. But when you've been pouring out and pouring out and pouring out and pouring out, and here you are at Athens, you are pouring out. You have all of the governors, all the state representatives. You have all the people around. You have everybody there, and you've preached your heart out, and you've introduced them to this unnamed God, this unknown God. You've told them who he is. You've told them that he loves you. You've told them that, hey, all of your sin, he winked at. He ignored. It doesn't matter. Your past doesn't matter. Can I tell you today? Your past doesn't matter. What matters is from this day forward. He told him your past doesn't matter. Take it all up right now. Salvation is for everybody. That God loves me. And he's poured into these people. And he tries to tell them about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by this, you can have eternal life. By this, you don't have to go to hell. By this, you don't have to face a second death. By this, you're not cast into the lake of fire after the great white throne of judgment. By this, you shall know that you have an eternal home in heaven. And they said, Pfft. You're an idiot. We, we don't want anything to do with you. 
You preach to a multitude and you run out of town. And you go to another city and the same thing happens. And you go to another city and the same thing happens. You know, sooner or later, that's got to start wearing on you a little bit, right? How many of, how many of you ever just, it's just been one of them days, one of them days, and, and you get a text from anybody, and it just says, I just want you to know I love you and I'm praying for you today. That, that's all it said. And it changed your day. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Am I by myself? You, 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 everything seems like upside down. Everything's going wrong. But all of a sudden, just because you find out a brother or sister in Christ is thinking about you right then, you know what that means? That means that the Holy Spirit's thinking about you right then. That means that the Holy Spirit's got your back. He knows what you're going through, and he knows the sadness. And the Holy Spirit reached over here and said, hey, 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 hey. Hey, pray, pray for him. Pray. I don't know why God does it like that. I mean, if God knows you're going through something, why don't God just fix it, right? My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. But he don't. He doesn't say, oh, 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 one of my children, man. He, he's having, hey, hey, hey. I need you to pray for him right now. And as soon as this one will pray for him, got you. He's going to go answer your prayer, and he's going to give that one the reward for praying for him. And now he's going to go over and he's going to start lifting the burden. And all it took was this and say, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. You know why that's important? Because that means the Holy Spirit put me on somebody else's mind. The Holy Spirit of God had somebody pray for me. And Jesus Christ, my mediator, said, Father, I need you to do something over here for this one. Can you see why it was an encouragement? For his two traveling partners to show up. And, and so Paul is encouraged. And, and he goes in. And they'll have nothing to do with it. It said that they opposed him. That word opposed comes from a Greek word. That means the same thing as they set themselves in battle array against him. Kind of like at Lystra. When they stoned him and threw him out of the city for dead. They set themselves in battle ray against him. They turned against him, which means they turned against his message, which means they turned against God, and he said, I've had it. I've had it. I'm going to do exactly what Jesus told the disciples to do when he sent them out two by two. I'm going to shake the dust off of my shoes as a witness against that city, and I'm going to the Gentiles. I'm going to go to somebody that wants to hear it. Now, that doesn't mean Paul's through going to the synagogue. That, but, I mean, you see there's some Greeks here at the synagogue. And we know he's going to go to the synagogue because we're going to sit in the next chapter. He'll go back to another synagogue. So he's not through preaching at the synagogue. But remember, the purpose for going to the synagogue is to find somebody there that may be like-minded. I mean, if they're at the synagogue, they at least have some knowledge of God. They at least have some hunger. They wouldn't be at the synagogue if they didn't have some desire to know something about God. So he goes there looking for some common ground so that he can tell them, let me tell you about God, let me tell you about Christ. So, so he's not through with the synagogue. That's kind of a platform. It's a gathering place. But what he is through with is pouring himself into the Jews who not only have, have beat him up and, and cursed him and run him out of the city, but they followed him for 100 miles on the first missionary journey all the way to Lystra where they started up a bunch, had him stoned. And finally, when they thought he was dead, they went back home, and now God went to work. As he went back through, God formed a church in every city that he went back through. See, God always has a plan. When it looks upside down, when it looks dark, when it looks hopeless, when it looks inconvenient, when it looks absolutely impossible, God's just getting warmed up. When it's absolutely hopeless, you just get into a spot where God can make a way out of no way.
When it looks like there ain't no way that's good, you finally got to a spot where you'll stop trying to solve it yourself and let God show you the great and mighty things. And, and that's kind of the things that we see here. And Paul says, that's fine. That's fine. I, I've, had, I've been sent to the Gentiles from now on. I'll just preach to the Gentiles. That's the way the Jews want it. You killed the Christ. You crucified him. You put it out. Paul, Paul loves his people. We've talked about it two or three times. Paul loves the, the Jewish nation. He, he loves his Hebrew family, if you will. But Paul says enough is enough. There are some people out there who are hungry to hear the gospel. There are some people out there that want to know the truth. There are some people out there that I can put my time in. And, and they will gladly receive the word. And souls will be saved and redeemed from the fiery pits of hell and spend eternity in heaven. So if you don't want it, fine. Your blood's on your hand. Kind of like Ezekiel said. If you don't tell them, and they die in their sin, blood's on your hand. But if you tell them, and they die in their sin, the blood's on their own hand. That's what the Apostle Paul says. I've told you. I've tried. I've given you everything. Now, then we find that Paul finds a place to lodge. Well, I'm out of time. Lord willing, we'll pick up there. Paul finds a place to lodge with a man that's actually connected to the synagogue right there. And, and he lives there for a time. But Lord willing, we'll, we'll pick up right there uh, next Wednesday night. God, thank you so much for this book, God. Thank you, Lord, that, that we can just study this book and that we can, well, we can see our life. I, I, we, we can see our defeats. We can see our storms. We can see our battles. But we can see our victories. We can see our success we can see our redemption lord we can see everything about our life god it's not just stuff that happened in the old testament it's not just stuff that happened in the new testament church it's stuff that happened in our life today god it's things that matters dictates guides and implies and, and, and carries out my life today lord it's the things that will influence our life tomorrow god is it's the thing that that'll help us be the light in this crooked and perverse nation we can't be a light in a dark world unless we're putting the light inside of us Thank you, God, for this book. Thank you for this light, this lamp that it turns on inside of our heart, this love letter that reminds us and assures us of the great love of where you loved us, that while we were yet sinners, you sent Christ to pay for our sin, that we might be called the sons of God. Thank you so much for loving us. God, I pray for every family represented in this place. God, may you put a hedge of protection around each one. Lord, I pray you'd open the windows of heaven and pour out blessings that there be not room enough to receive it. I pray most of all, will you help us, God, to be pleasing to you. May people see Christ in our lives and know that what we have is what they need. We love you, God. You've been good to us. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. amen.